It is Sunday the 7th of November. It is a cold and bright, crisp, blue sky morning, which I love to see. And I have just finished editing this chat with Steve, who has been a football journalist for 45 years and has written books about rivalries between clubs in different cities across the UK. Started with London, did Lancashire, and he's now done uh, a book on the Midlands. So we chat a bit about Villa and Birmingham and West Brom and Wolves. Um, but he is also the captain of Leighton Orient over 70s walking football team. So we discuss that as well. Steve, it was lovely to chat to you and wish you all the best of luck with the book. Steve, I wanted to start with uh, something that we have in common, which is that we both went to our first football match at White Hart Lane. Uh, I wonder if you can maybe remember or reminisce about what it was like to go to White Hart Lane. And I think it was, was it 1957? Yes, which means I was just about six years old. It was actually quite an unusual game because, and I didn't realise this until quite a long while afterwards, it was played on a Wednesday afternoon um, at a time when Spurs did have floodlights, but the flood, I only really realised this when I was writing my first book about London clubs, London turf wars. Um, the floodlights were apparently being repaired, which meant that although it was a very big local derby against Chelsea, um, the attendance was not much more than 20,000, um, which was probably quite a, uh, not a bad thing for me as a six-year-old going along with my dad. Um, it was a very exciting game. I think Chelsea won 4-3. And so, as a lot of people tend to support the team they first went to watch or the team who they first saw win, I could have ended up, I suppose, supporting either Spurs or Chelsea. And we did live quite near to Tottenham. But it was uh, soon impressed on me that uh, our family team was Leighton Orient, for better or for worse. And so my next match after that was the following um, Good Friday in 1957 at Brisbane Road, when the result was Leighton Orient 1, Leicester City 5. My dad said on the way out, oh, don't worry, they're at home again tomorrow. Perhaps we'll see them win tomorrow. So I think even as a six-year-old, I thought, hang on, we've just seen this team lose 5-1 at home and we've got to come back and watch them again tomorrow. And so we went back the next day, Easter Saturday, and saw Lake Orient nil, Fulham 2. Hmm. And it went on pretty much from there. But it's been um, interesting uh, with Lake Orient. And uh, I've still kept an eye on Spurs. My grandfather at that time, always, he had originally watched Orient when they were clapped at Orient, but he got very disillusioned with them. And like many people, late 1950s and early 1960s, um, became very keen on Spurs. So we've always uh, kept a Spurs connection. And in fact, I'm afraid to say that uh, two of my children, very badly brought up, have both become Spurs supporters as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, out of the four children, we have two Spurs, two Charlton, and none late nor in whatsoever. So I'm carrying that flag on my own. That's that's quite a quite a mix. Charlton a little bit further because you grew up in Walthamstow, didn't you? In that kind of West Ham yes. Spurs uh, Arsenal axis. Yes, exactly. So I really I, we were about half equidistant almost from Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham, um, any one of whom I would have been quite fun to support for the 1960s. But then when I got married, uh, we moved south of the river. And I remember actually my oldest son, when he was quite young, probably only five years old or so, five or six like me, 
said, how do people decide which team to support? And I said, well, you either support your family team, that's Lake Norian, or you support the team where you live, and that's Charlton. And I think even at that young age, he was uh, bright enough to look at the league tables and mm -hmm. realise that Charlton was probably going to be a better bet. And so he, he's done quite well out of that. Because, of course, we had uh, eight or nine very enjoyable years in the Premier League. And um, my wife has remained loyal to them as a season ticket holder. So most Saturdays these days, um, my wife walks down the road to the valley with her season ticket and I cross the river to Brisbane Road with my season ticket. And then we come home and compare notes. Very nice. Very nice. When you say, when you say your dad or your granddad got disillusioned with Clapton Orient, why was that? Uh, there was it's one of those tales of, of owners, really. Um, there was a well-known figure, Brigadier, who effectively owned Clapton Orion. And at one stage, they, I mean, they were comparatively, compared to today, they were a comparatively big club. They were sort of regular second division club. They had a very big ground at Millfields. Um, but he sold out the ground, I think was the story. Um, they ended up at the, uh, then the, what was the old Clapton Greyhound track. And one of those stories of decline that just set in, you know, attendance, attendance went down um, and uh, it, it kind of deteriorated from there. Mm. I think that, well, like Clapton and Clapton um, <clears throat> Community Football Club now, there's like, a, I don't know if you followed that, but there's like, there was a whole story about the fans creating a club and the owner leaving and all that sort of stuff. So to think that that was happening, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago is quite interesting. Yes, that's right. Um, you're from London. You support London teams. Your family support London teams. Why did you end up, or how did you end up writing a book about football in, in the Midlands? Well, London came first. Um, once I stopped being a full-time newspaper journalist, which was in 2013, I left the Independent where I've been for a while. I thought, as a self-employed journalist, writer, I have a bit more time to do what, what some of the things I'd like to do. And... Um, on the basis that you should write about what you know. I thought, well, if I know about anything, it's probably football and it's probably London clubs, mainly having spent most of my life there. Um, so the original book, the original Turf Wars book, came out about London clubs and uh, was quite successful. It was reprinted quite early on and the publishers were very happy with it. So the second one, it seemed sensible to uh, concentrate on Lancashire which, of course, we did the Manchester and, and Merseyside clubs and, and others like Blackburn and Preston have been very important historically. And then the, the next uh, time, this, these all, I mean, they take about two years each to do. So um, two years ago, we thought about the Midlands and it would have been nice in a way to do the whole of the Midlands, but it, that was actually a bit too much. I mean, even in Lancashire, there were almost too many clubs to write about. Um, so I concentrated on the West Midlands, uh, where there are more, there are more definitely, more definite rivals and, and more local clubs and so on. Um, and I had, in fact, there was a, a personal connection because when I was very young, probably only about two years old, we did move to the Midlands briefly because my father was a librarian, got a job there. Um, and so in 1957, that same year that I went to Spurs and Orient for the first time, I also went to Coventry for the first time because in the FA Cup they were drawn against Walthamstow Avenue, which obviously was the place in the team where I'd been born and a team that my dad used to watch occasionally when uh, when he was in Orient. And uh, so we saw a, an FA Cup tie 
uh, Coventry being quite a lowly club in those days in the third division south, I think. Uh, and they just managed to beat the Avenue 1-0. So uh, I, we stayed in the Midlands for a while. It was in the Midlands that I watched the first FA Cup final that I can remember, which was 1957, which Aston Villa happened to win, beating the uh, Matt, Matt Busby's, Busby Babes of Manchester United. Um, and, and then we came back to London. So the West Midlands is a, is a, I mean, always has been an important area historically. Of course, when the Football League started in 1988, it was evenly split between six Lancashire clubs and six Midlands clubs, um, who included Villa and West Brom and Stoke and Wolves. Um, so it's very important uh, area historically. Um, just unfortunate that, um, with the possible exception of Villa, it's they've fallen upon slightly harder times. It's, it's now over, well, exactly 40 years, 1981, since a, a, a West Midlands team last won the league, which was Aston Villa, of course, who then went on to win the, the European Cup. Um, but still a very important area and, a, and, a, and an area of great rivals. Um, very locally, i.e. Aston Villa and Birmingham, and then West Brom and Wolves, who are traditionally dislike each other the most. Um, and then it's nice in these books to have about half a dozen what we call bigger clubs. So I've included Stoke, uh, very historically important as well, and, and Coventry. Um, and then I, I always, perhaps as a supporter of Lake Orient, I sometimes feel the smaller clubs don't get... Uh, quite the coverage and the deal that they should in the media. And so um, in, in this particular area, you've got clubs like Warsaw and Port Vale and Shrewsbury and, and Burton Albion, one of the newer ones, as well as clubs like Hereford and, and Kidderminster who fought their way into the league as well and, and then dropped out. So um, those are, I think, I mean, People probably wouldn't, wouldn't disagree that, that London and Lancashire and then the Midlands have been the main football areas. Uh, others like the North East and then Yorkshire, you've got um, who might perhaps be future volumes for the, the Turf Wars series. Who knows? Yeah, exciting for you to be thinking about what's next, where where to where to go to next. As a, like as a Londoner, I look at like the mid as I look at all those clubs that you've just mentioned there, and I like the like Birmingham and Villa. That's that's the rivalry that jumps out on me. Like when I think about that part of the world, or when I've like had friends or met people from Birmingham, like they either support Birmingham or Villa. To what extent is it those two in terms of fan bases, and then everyone else? Uh, I think West West Brom and Wolves would would probably disagree. I mean. Um, Villa undoubtedly are, are the biggest club in the area, both historically and even these days. I mean, the, the Midlands of uh, the West Midlands have won the league title 11 times, which is Villa 7, Wolves 3, which were all in the 1950s when they were a very big club, uh, and West Brom once. Um, but even West Brom, a uh, uh, historically very important team, actually played Villa in three different FA Cup finals, all before 1900. Um, so that was that was a big um, a big rivalry in itself. In fact, uh, one of the very many old uh, newspaper cuttings I looked at, which I think came out around about the time the Football League was started, and of course um, William McGregor, the Aston Villa director, who basically thought up the whole thing, had to decide which dozen or so teams he would have in it. And one of the papers said um, there are basically only four 
major clubs who are clearly were Aston Villa and West Brom and then Blackburn and Preston and further north. And, and of course, no, no London teams merited any serious consideration at all at that time. Um, it wasn't until uh, the early 1890s that Arsenal, as Woolwich Arsenal, south of the river, um, became the first London team in the league. Um, and then not until um, the next decade after that, of course, the Spurs got into the league, having actually won the FA Cup, as I'm sure you know, as a, as a Southern League team. Um, and then, only then really, before the, the First World War, um, did London become uh, become serious, serious contenders. So, yes, Villa and Birmingham uh, very much perhaps the oldest. Uh, Birmingham, of course, were originally known as Small Heath. Uh, alliance after the small heath area which was their area about three miles away from aston slightly distinct area their own very proud local district um uh, but wolves and west brom similarly just a bit further west um, who we tend to think of as the black country clubs um were also growing up very early but the oldest of them all in in terms of the book although not necessarily seen as as very big rivals of those clubs were stoke um there's always, a, a, in many cases, there's some doubt about the actual date or formation of these clubs. And Stoke, I think, were one of those who probably got the, the date of formation wrong so that they they end up celebrating their centenary a sort of a few years earlier than they actually should. Um, but Stoke, of all those clubs, that actually, it, it has been quite well documented, um, were founded a, a bit before all of those. Um, and their big rivalry, of course, was with Port Vale, who at times, I mean, even comparatively recently, in about the 1990s, had been playing at the same level when, when Stoke were having a, a bad period and, and Vale were doing well. Um, and one of, one of the things that's always interesting in all these books is the way in which local clubs tend to merge sometimes and come together rather than staying as different rivals. And there was a, quite a row in the 1920s when... Um, there was talk of Port Vale and Stoke merging. And in fact, the, um, the Port Vale directors, unknown to their own uh, fans or anybody else, had virtually agreed to merging with Stoke. Um, attraction for Stoke being that Port Vale had, had uh, a, a decent ground as well. Um, and it was only really when the Port Vale supporters got wind of this and created a stink that, um, that the merger was called off and, and the Port Vale directors were, were forced to resign because of their part in it. So they have, fortunately for Port Vale these days, they've remained separate clubs. Um, maybe the other, the other thing about Stoke and, and Port Vale compared even to the, those other local rivalries was that one of the themes uh, of all the books really is that it's unfortunate in a way, but I'm afraid I've, I've come to the view that it is a fact of football life that big clubs tend to stay big and, and small clubs tend to stay small. I mean, this is obviously good news for supporters of Spurs and not such good news for supporters of Lake Norian. But uh, I would have to agree, I'm afraid, that uh, there is unlikely to be a time when Lake Norian are a bigger club than Spurs. Um, I was very, very lucky that when I was, uh, what, 11 years old, um, Orient got into the first division, the top division, as it was then, of English football for the first time ever. And so I saw them play Spurs twice that season. And, of course, then Spurs got relegated briefly in the 70s and, and played Orient in the second division. So it does happen, as I was saying about Stoke and Port Vale, the, 
these rivals come together from time to time. And that's one of the other themes of these books, that, that virtually every club, without exception, has its bad times as well as its good times. Um, and even the smaller clubs, in this case, Port Vale, Walsall, Shrewsbury, even Hereford, all those clubs got to the second division of English football. Um, and, and were doing quite well from time to time, quite apart from the great days they had in the, in the FA Cup. Um, so, but essentially those clubs, those, those Midlands clubs I mentioned, when they get to the second level of English football, they are basically overachieving. Mm. And on the resources they've got, um, either from their owners or from their attendance figures, which are a pretty good guide to, to a team's stature, um, they really can't cope for very long, so they tend not to stay up there for very long. So I'd say it is unfortunate in a way. Um, we all keep hoping, and uh, those of us who support so-called smaller clubs can always hope and dream that we will get up a league or two. But I'm afraid these days there is a bit of a glass ceiling, and and I think it's become worse. I mean, um, I don't, you're probably aware recently we, we've probably talk about a big six in English football, don't we? The two Manchester clubs of Liverpool and then Arsenal, Spurs and Chelsea. Um, and some people rather short-sightedly, I thought, recently were saying, oh, Arsenal and Spurs are doing so badly, there's going to be only a big four. But if you said to anybody, you know, who are the big six in English football, I think most most people would say exactly exactly the same. And um, that, that that's a change and a rather unfortunate change from... Uh, I think it was the, say, the 1970s, the late 1960s, early 1970s, I, I've always remembered that for seven years, uh, seven years in succession, the Football League was won by a different team. And you had teams from comparatively small towns like Derby and Nottingham uh, who would win the Football League and amazingly in Forest's case, of course, win the European Cup for two years running, which is extraordinary. And, you know, places like Ipswich, Norwich, who, who Watford would be runners-up in Southampton, runners-up in the top division of English football. And, and sadly, I'm afraid you just don't see that happening anywhere. Yeah, it's not going to it's not going to happen again, is it? Or any time no. soon? Um, no, um, is it? Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was going to say, you know, why, why can't it happen? I suppose the... It's, it's down as much to the investors these days and, and the financial men, really, isn't it? Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the questions about football in the Midlands, in the West Midlands in particular, is, you know, why haven't they been more successful? It's a big area. It's got a huge population. It was always important industrially. Um, I, I suppose you need to attract, you need to attract three things, really. You need to attract the investors and they will, they will look for potential and achievement um, you need to attract the right coaches and the right players and they are much more focused on the short term um, so if we look at investors I mean the, the famous story of, of Roman Abramovich um, deciding on Chelsea and, and you could see why I, I, I've never really known whether the story was true that he actually flew over, flew over London yeah. <laughs> yeah and and didn't like the look of the area quite so much as he did of, of Chelsea. I know Tottenham is uh, supposed to be one of those places we read about in the property supplements these days, a, a big up-and-coming place. Uh, if you're but on you the Victoria line. Why, yes, yes, exactly. Um, you can see why Chelsea, as a, as a more glamorous club, 
uh, appeal to him uh, and a club that was actually going to pretty close to getting into the Champions League. Um, whereas Tottenham, of course, had, as you know, had a much better history, you know, a Chelsea club that didn't ever win the Football League until the 1950s and, and then only once for a very long time. Um, so the West Midlands, I think, has, has had, they've had the investors. Um, in fact, the, um, one of the papers, the Birmingham paper, does it, its own rich list most years, copying the, the Sunday Times. And the most recent one of the six richest people in the whole of the area, four of them were the owners of the local football clubs, um, two of them at Villa and, and then Wolves and West Brom. So they've attracted people from, these were uh, largely China, Hong Kong, um, as well as in Villa's case now, the new owners, Egypt and America, they, they've attracted the investors. Um, but they're still probably what you would call second division level in terms of finance, as opposed to you know the sort of people coming into Manchester City and Chelsea and and now Newcastle, which which may or not work out. We, we have to wait and see on that one. And then in terms of of, of coaches and players, um, London is obviously hugely attractive uh, just as a place to live and work. And uh, it's easy to imagine, uh, you know, players don't come just on their own. They tend to bring their families or they have wives, girlfriends, partners. And if you're given a choice of explaining to them that you can play in London or you can play in Birmingham, then no great offence to Birmingham. But if a lot of them, let's say, would, would probably prefer the, the glamour of London and so on. Mm. Um, whereas Manchester and Liverpool can still attract players because I suppose of their, their football history. And everybody knows, you know, um, of course, the Premier League being being so popular and so well established throughout the world. Virtually anybody who plays football anywhere in the world knows how important Liverpool and, and Manchester are as, as football centres. So the Midlands has got. I mean, Villa got Villa got quite close. If you think about it, I think it was three successive seasons they were in sixth place under Martin O'Neill. Uh, twenty yes, twenty oh eight to twenty ten. They were sixth in the table, and and when anybody said, you know, who are the next team who are going to make the leap and become one of the big four, uh, Villa, even more than Everton, um, were normally the team who were mentioned. But uh, Randy Lerner, who was the American, you probably remember, who bought the club from Doug Ellis, um, had basically at that time he'd spent about two hundred million pounds was the uh, the estimate. He got them to sixth place for three seasons running, um, but they were they had huge wage bill at part of time, and it was nearly ninety percent of their income, which everybody knows is far too high a percentage. I mean, anything over about sixty sixty five percent is regarded as being a bit unhealthy. Barcelona, most clubs, yeah, most clubs, if they've got enough backing, can get away with sort of seventy seventy five percent. But you can't, I think he realised that, that this just wasn't sustainable to be paying 90% of your income on wages and still not getting above that glass ceiling and getting into the top four. So so he pulled out. Um, they got new uh, owners in from, from Asia uh, who found it equally difficult to, to break in. 
And so Villa, I think the last time I looked at the league table, both Villa and Wolves were actually in the bottom half of, of the Premier League. And, it, and it's difficult to know, again, how far they can go. All I would say as a positive is that really the thing I said about big clubs and small clubs, I think we can all agree that Aston Villa will always be regarded as one of the biggest clubs. Um, I always think it's, it's quite an interesting um, exercise, which I've still not done myself, to write down who you think are actually the biggest 20 clubs in the country. Mm. Um, because you, you obviously can't just look at the Premier League table and say, oh, Brighton and Watford and Norwich, uh, they're really big clubs. Um, when there are there are clubs outside the, um, outside the Premier League at the moment, West Brom, Sunderland. Say, Yes, Sunderland, Sunderland in the third level of, of English football. Um, so it's quite it's quite interesting to work out who who the big clubs really are and and sort of what you base it on. And, and as as I hinted at, I, I think history counts for quite a, a part of it. Attendances too, I think, are important. You know, if, if a club like Sunderland can put in thirty thousand people every week and was effectively the third division. You, you've got to regard them as a pretty big club. And my other, my other argument um, is that once a club has been successful um, for a period of time and they've sort of built up that support, even, even if people drift away a bit and maybe one generation stops coming, that, that there will always be enough support. But if, I mean, there's an example like um, I thought of recently, Huddersfield Town. Huddersfield in the 1930s were a huge club um, when uh, Herbert Chapman was the manager and made them champions of England two years running before he, he went to Arsenal and transformed them. Huddersfield were a huge club. Uh, and so even by the time very recently when they got back into the Premier League, you always felt there was that sort of bedrock of support and that tradition. And, and the other advantage was which places like Huddersfield and, and Derby and, and Sunderland have, of course, is they are basically one team in the town. Yeah. Um, you know, we, these books I've, I've done focus on, on the great rivalries and sometimes rivalries in the same city and the same town. But, but there is an undoubted advantage to, to places like that and Southampton and Ipswich and Norwich where there is one team in the town and the town basically supports them, especially if it's, if it's not all that close to a big big city like London or Manchester or Birmingham. Um, they are very much the local town team and, and so that helps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but you said that, you know, teams have their good moments and their bad moments. I guess I, I feel like Aston Villa at the moment are kind of, they're in, they're, you mentioned the time of Martin O'Neill. I remember that so clearly that period, like at the end of the, the noughties. Um, and now that it's like a, another cycle and they've been down and now they're back up. And I feel like then I don't, I mean, they might be underperforming. I don't feel like they're about to get relegated. I feel like they're kind of well-established as a Premier League, as a Premier League club again. What's, I guess, maybe from, from the research that you did and from people that you spoke to, what is like success for, for Aston Villa over the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years? They were... If you remember, I think it was the start of last year. They had that fantastic start and, and beat Liverpool. What was it? 7-3, yeah. Um, extraordinary game. And and people were suddenly saying, they were in the top four for a while, and people were suddenly saying, oh, Aston Villa serious Champions League contenders. Um, and it didn't work out because it was pretty much the same old same old teams ended up up there. Um, 
they've got to be looking at, at European football, um, which in some ways is not quite as glamorous as it was. And no disrespect to Spurs and whatever that funny competition is they're playing in this, yeah. this season. And the, the Europa League never seems to have quite the glamour of um, those of us who remember the old UEFA Cup and, and how well English clubs did in that and were very strong quality of, of, of opposition you got from European clubs. But Euro- European football, in quotes, still, I think, means something. And and that's got to be, you know, Villa really need, like Everton, I, I mean, I think I can put Aston Villa and Everton on a pretty similar level historically and in terms of support and so on. Um, interesting to see if, if Everton can take the next step up when they, when they finally get to their new ground. Um, but no, Villa, Villa have got to be looking at European football. Um, Wolves have got to be looking at establishing themselves again in the Premier League because I, I think, again, without having done this list of the 20 top clubs, I think Wolves will be pretty close to um, to one of the top 20 clubs in the country. Um, and so they've all they've got their level that they're aiming at. Um, but you just wonder, as I say, with Villa, are they ever going to to break the glass ceiling and and get as high again as really they should have been at one point? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And obviously, like probably as as kind of glaring or um as obvious example of a club like selling their best player and rebuilding around a number of a number of players and like they've probably done that as well as anyone could have done and i think you know the fact that like they were in a position to do that says says a lot about i don't know i guess the owners and the coach and and the other players and all that sort of stuff um you said that normally, well, as a rule, I guess smaller clubs will stay small and bigger clubs will stay big. Do you think that there, who would you say is the candidate of the small clubs who is kind of pushing on on becoming a big club? Is there anyone that you think, okay, if it's going to be anyone, it might be them? Difficult to say, um, because partly because it depends on investment. I yep. mean, there are a lot of um, what do they call what's the cliche sleeping giants mm. uh one we haven't mentioned sheffield wednesday um, yeah. you know when i when i was growing up um the team who when when spurs famous the most famous spurs team won their double in 1961 you know sheffield wednesday were the only team who were anywhere near pushing um they were could reasonably say at that team they were the time they were the second best team in the country um, always been a huge club, always had a big ground for all the, the tragedy of Hillsborough. It, it remained, uh, as it always has been, uh, an iconic and a, a big ground, um, and are now are now underachieving, clearly. Um, one of those clubs that taking an awful long time to get back into the top division, as are, say, Nottingham Forest and indeed Derby, um, previous, previous champions. Um, the smaller clubs, it's really very difficult to say because until they get maybe that 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 one investor who can make a difference. Um, as I say, because I, I put quite a lot of store on on attendance figures. Um, any club who are, you know who get as far as the championship with attendances of only six or seven thousand yeah. for me are overachieving and they're going to find it very difficult to sustain it. Um, there are other clubs like you know like Charlton down the road from me. Charlton, uh, when my wife went to see them on Saturday, had sixteen thousand there apparently. 
which is pretty decent going at the third level of football. They're, they're underachieving. They should be at least one, one division higher. But unfortunately, uh, what has happened, I mean, I, I mentioned those days in the 70s when so many different teams from comparatively small towns could, could achieve great things. And, and a man, one single local man like Jack Walker could push Blackburn effectively to win the title itself. Um, I don't know even that that's going to happen anymore. Uh, you know, we've, we've all worked in years past, we've had rich local businessmen who could take their team pretty high and Jack Walker was the, the outstanding example. Um, and then if, if you go back to the West Midlands, uh, somebody like Steve Morgan, who I believe was uh, behind Red Row, the builders, and made his millions with them, was actually a Liverpudlian. I don't think had any great connection with Wolves, but took over as Wolves and was seen as someone who could produce the resources for them. And rather like even someone as rich as Randy Lerner, he effectively had to give up and say, I can't do this anymore. We're going to have to get some, again, they happen to come from Asia. Uh, we're going to have to get some people in with more money than me. So sadly, um, what I'm saying is that it's going to be very difficult for one small local businessman um, to take over. The one, the one thing which, which probably hasn't happened well, I suppose it did happen with Elton John, I was going to say that real sort of show business people, perhaps a bit like the, the rather strange American couple that have taken over Wrexham of all people. Yeah. Um, Elton John, I, I think, from memory, was the only real example of, of someone from the entertainment business who clearly had plenty of disposable money and put it behind a football club and, and enabled Watford with the, the brilliance of a manager like Graham Taylor, as it happened, to, to achieve unthinkable things from the fourth division to runners-up in the top division and then Europe. Um, the, the example, I suppose, in the West Midlands, Port Vale supporters for years have always hoped that uh, Robbie Williams, who's, yeah. who's very much a fan, would actually put some of his millions into the club, but that, that doesn't seem to have happened. And that's the only comparable example I could think of, of, of someone else, as opposed to an actual businessman, who might just get behind their local club and, and maybe push them up the pyramid. I mean, we've got so Ed Sheeran, I think, has sponsored Ipswich Towns kit yes. something, right? But he hasn't. He's not yes. like a part owner or a big investor or anything. No, no. It, I mean, Ipswich is a is a sad example, really, of, of what I was saying about a, a a very good local club. I mean, if you go to Ipswich, people are Ipswich Town basically, even though a, a, a few people, I suppose, get on the train to London most Saturdays to support a London club, but it, it's very much a one town, one team town. Um, and who, as we know, on the days of, of Bobby Robson or even before him, Alf Ramsey achieved fantastic things, um, but have just fallen away. And again, in, in, their, in their case, had a, an investor who just essentially had to give up and say, I, I just can't put any more money into trying to get this club where supporters think they should be and, and want to be. Yeah. Um, you grew up supporting Leighton Orient, still support Leighton Orient, and you now find yourself as the captain of the Leighton Orient over 70s walking football team. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I should say I've only just qualified for the over 70s. Oh, of course, of course. very clear. But sadly, I'm now qualified for that. Um, I, I actually started playing walking football at Millwall in south of the river. Um, and interestingly, they're, they're very, very different. Um, 
Millwall, regard, I, I imagine people know a bit about football these days. It, it's very much what it says on the tin. Uh, you know, it's football, but you're not allowed to run, which causes endless disputes as it happens. But um, uh, the rules otherwise very similar to anybody who knows five-a-side football. So a sort of semicircle with a goal area where the goalkeeper is allowed to come out and, and attacking players aren't allowed to go in. Uh, otherwise, the, the main rules are only that uh, the ball doesn't go over head height, so heading is not actually allowed, and um, uh, you do throw it, uh, kick-ins instead of throw-ins. Otherwise, very similar to actual football, and they've actually tried to keep the rules um, very much based on real football. No offsides is the other problem of the main rule. Um, yes, yeah, so Millwall... Um, regard the whole thing as very much associated with Millwall Club. Uh, it, it's at the, they actually play at the den, the, the dome next to the, the, the ground. Um, they regard it very much as a, just a, a social exercise, uh, a keep fit exercise, a bit of socialising. Walking football is mainly for over 50s or over 40s in the case of women's teams. Uh, Millwall, again, the whole thing is mixed. So every session, it's all ages. Uh, men and women, um, and they're not very interested in playing other clubs or competitive matches. They regard it, to say, as, as a basically a social social exercise. We did uh, I did go abroad with them once. We played in a tournament in the Algarve in Portugal, wow. and we're the only uh, the only mixed team there. And in fact, we won the award as having the oldest player, which was one of our women players who was eighty three at the time, and uh, <laughs> caused quite a stir. Um, by turning out there. But then um, I decided once I became a season ticket holder again at Lake Norend, I decided I ought to try their walking football. And they're completely different. Um, Was it big, run... big, big transfer fee? Uh, sadly not. No, uh -huh. they didn't recognise my quality at the time. <laughs> um, and they wouldn't have had to pay much to get me, but they didn't have <laughs> paying anything at all. Um, but Orient uh, run teams at uh, every different age group, 50s, 60s, 65s, and now 70s. Uh, the 70s team, we don't yet compete in the league. We've just been playing friendlies this year. But the other three all compete in the Essex League, um, which is very well organised and very competitive. Uh, there are now national competitions at most all of those age groups, actually. And there have even been international matches. Um, England against Italy, I think, about three or four years ago was the first international match was played down at Brighton at the actual Amex Stadium. So the whole thing is really taking off. Um, what I think is a bit disappointing is that it's, it's not run by the actual football association. Um, and I'm surprised they haven't really made a bigger effort to take over the whole thing because it fits in with so many of their aims and objectives of, of um, diversity, yeah. getting women involved, of keeping fit and healthy. Um, but they, they produce their own set of rules which aren't universally used. So, for instance, in the Essex League, we have our own Essex walking football rules, which are very slightly different, nothing major. But it, it sometimes feels a bit like boxing, where you've got two or three or even more different yeah. governing bodies. Um, and it would be nice, especially if, if the sport is taking off internationally and they're talking about having World Cups and European Championships and everything. Uh, I think it would be, it would be nice if, if it could come under one umbrella. And, and to be honest, the, the Football Association is, is probably the best way to do it. But uh, anyway, it's been, um, 
been terrifically enjoyable as as exercise, as fitness, as serious football, if you want. Um, I think most people, uh, obviously, veterans football, vets football, still still carries on. Uh, but a lot of people, once they get to the age of about 50, think maybe they want to slow down a bit. They don't want to uh, risk any injuries so much. Um, or others like myself, I mean, I, I virtually stopped playing when I was uh, probably mid-20s to 30 because I was so busy watching and working at weekends. Um, I just played an occasional charity game or something. Um, and so hadn't hadn't played seriously for, for 30 odd years until I started taking up walking football again. And what you notice, of course, I mean, many of the many of the, the skills essentially are exactly the same. You have to control the ball and pass the ball and shoot and defend and attack. And um, it, it's very similar. So um, I'm I'm a bit of a, a an advocate for it, as you can see. Yeah. Um, but I'm and. Uh, it is so. It is flourishing. It's catching on everywhere, and almost every, I think, almost every major club, football league clubs, have probably got um, a walking football club or, or team close by who they're associated with. And and um, if anybody listening is interested, it's very easy just to to look up a list of clubs and, and find somewhere near to you. Yeah, I got a friend whose dad plays and referees walking football, and she went down to go and join in. And she was like, "Ah, oh, you know, still she still plays now. She played at a really high level when she was younger. She's not playing as as high a level now, but she still plays." And she was like, "Okay, I'll like kind of show these old guys a thing or two. And she said it was like just so unbelievably difficult, and she really, really struggled just with the <laughs> with the no running thing. Technically, yes, she said it was yeah. right, but really, like she was like, this is like making me think so much more and so differently to how I would when I'm normally playing. Yes, yes. The first thing you do is uh, in your first match, you play a nice pass into into space for somebody to run onto. Yeah. <laughs> and then actually, they're not allowed to run onto it, and the ball dribbles into touch, and you look very silly. Um, we. Um, We've actually been concentrating, my team, uh, we've actually been concentrating uh, just on passing the ball to feet because, uh, say, especially in the over 70s age, if you pass the ball into space, then, then a teammate has got even less chance of getting it than, uh, than, than they would have had years ago or in normal football. So, um, yeah, passing to feet. I mean, if, if you look at film, there's quite a lot of film on it online and YouTube or anywhere. And, and it might look very slow, but um, there is still an element of as as of a football of, of moving into space. I mean, you know, if you if you just pass to feet and you you don't move at all, you're not going to get very far up the field, for instance. Um, well, one of the other things, uh, incidentally, is that they're they're very keen on on minimal contact and uh, uh, so to minimise the risk of injury. Also, uh, uh, those older age groups, which is important. Um, and that's one of the slight differences between the the, leagues. the, the FA rules, I think, say minimal contact mm. uh, in the Essex League, although it's competitive leagues, they're, they're very keen on virtually no contact at all. So definitely no tackling from behind or even from the side and really only tackling from the front if it's genuinely a sort of loose ball. The idea basically if someone's in possession of the ball, um, you are effectively blocked them but you're not supposed to just crash into them from the front so it is quite quite and the referees generally are very good about that they do appreciate that at the older age levels uh, people need to be a bit careful mm. um, and and that's quite an important part of the sport 
and I, I think it's fair to say Tom Ivan Clay hasn't really come across basically any any serious injuries at all, which is good. That is really good. Do you is it like your your games, your friendlies, they're not at the same time as Orient games, are they? You don't have to choose between playing. No, no um, and also can be either um, indoors or outdoors. Um, fortunately, outdoors there are, as you know, throughout the country, there are more and more excellent um, 3G and 4G artificial pitches, and we're lucky to be able to play on most of those. Uh, I've actually stopped playing at one of our venues because it's essentially a hockey pitch, which I think qualifies as either 1G or 2G, and the surface is just too hard. Mm. for the ankles and the Achilles, which I, I get a bit of trouble from the Achilles if I, if I play too much. Um, so you, um, you you do have a variety of, of pitches, indoors or outdoors. Um, essentially, with the various age groups, um, the older age groups where people tend to, to have retired um, will play during the day. Um, and then there'll be sessions either Saturday morning, Sunday morning, or during the evenings under lights somewhere for for those who are still working, say the over fifties. Um, so all that's quite uh, all that's quite well organised. And as I say, there there are competitions at, at at all those levels as well. I've got to get into it. I'm coaching so much at the moment that I don't really have any a spare evening. And if I had a spare evening, I'd probably just want to either watch a game or sit inside somewhere in the dark and try and rest but next time i do have a, a chance to to check out a session i'm definitely going to because it sounds it sounds really really good um yeah steve it's been it's, yeah yeah no I, I genuinely would love to i think particularly with the way that i coach at the moment so much of an emphasis on you know passing into feet receiving and turning like all of that stuff i think it would not only benefit me physically but i'd get a lot out of it yeah uh, it's been lovely to meet you and chat to you. Uh, best of luck with the book and best of luck with with, uh, with Orient. That's really exciting. Hopefully you can you can get to the point where you're playing some games. Yes, that would be good. Um, no, very enjoyable. Thanks for your time. Brilliant.